Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. This is Season 11, Episode 4. Today we're replaying a broadcast of my conversation with Tara Jensen, whose book Flower Power has inspired many people to bake, and uh, I am one of them. You know, I've had the book, you know, since it came out, and it's really been an influence to me in my baking in from its uh, explanation of you know fermentation process and how it works to shaping the dough making the dough and trying out different types of recipes uh, using a, a sourdough starter as well as uh, trying out things like a decim and you know other methods used for leavening bread uh, it's a great book she was a wonderful guest i really enjoyed talking with her i'm going to take you now to my conversation with a bakery owner author Tara Jensen. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very happy to have on the podcast author, baker, Tara Jensen. She, her mission is to inspire self-confidence in the community change through the craft of baking. Her newest book, Flower Power, The Practice of the Pursuit of Baking Sourdough Bread, is going to be out of the week of this release. Tara, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Now, can you take us back to where baking began for you? What are your earliest memories of baking? My earliest memories of baking definitely involved my mother. I'm from Maine, uh, grew up in New England. And um, looking back on baking with my mom as a child, I can definitely see that she was doing it to keep the house warm, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Um, but I never complained as a kid because we always had like something special, like cookies or cakes or brownies coming out of the oven after school. So I think I kind of took it for granted. Um, uh, so we didn't do a lot of baking together, but it was always in my life. It was always in the background. Um, and then when I was in college, I stumbled into the Morning Glory Bakery in Bar Harbor, Maine. And I just really liked this scene, you know, it was like a very hip bakery, all these like sort of uh, heavily tattooed kind of punk rock women making all this bread. And um, there was a guy in the back, like listening to Morrissey all day. It just was kind of perfect. And so I just wanted to uh, desperately work there. So fortunately I was hired and um, I went to College of the Atlantic and got a degree in human ecology. But that whole time I was also working at a bakery. So when I left college, I just continued to seek out bakeries. And it kind of at some point, I think a decade in, I remember saying, okay, this, this is my career. This is, um, you know, I accept this as my craft and, and my journey pretty much for the rest of my life. <laughs> now you yeah. ran a wood-fired market bakery, Smoke Signals, from 2011 to 2018 in Nashville, North Carolina. It was a popular bakery that many loyal customers would travel miles to get to. Tell us about this bakery and what it was like to open it and run it on your own. That was an incredibly special time for me. Um, it was a little bit of a homestead. So I lived in a um, house right next to the bakery. And there was an outdoor wood-fired oven that was built by Alan Scott. And at that time, the property owner um, was Jennifer Lapidus, who also ran Carolina Ground Flour. So, uh, and was a good friend and mentor of mine. So that's how I found out about the space and um, got to be baking in it. It was her bakery in the 90s. Then it was Farm and Sparrow Bakery after her, then myself, and then 
Um, Brennan Johnson came and did Walnut Schoolhouse after that. And it's even in its like fourth, I think, iteration. Um, somebody bought the spot. But anyhow, um, I had a wood-fired oven that I was using to bake all my bread and pastries in. And I think the big takeaway from that chapter of uh, having smoke signals for me was learning how to be really proud of what I made, no matter what it looked like, because I was using a wood-fired oven. And of course, it was really rustic and a steep learning curve and going to the farmer's market or delivering my bread in whatever shape it was in, I think brought me to a place where I just truly appreciated the practice of making it. And um, I had come from a background in professional bakeries where there was gorgeous steam injected ovens. And I thought, well, you know, this bread just doesn't look like that. Um, and then sooner or later, Bon Appetit magazine knocked on my door and did like a wonderful spread about the bakery and the bread. And so I always tell participants in my workshop to, um, you know, be proud of what they make. And often if it looks different, that's a good thing because it's going to stand out. So that chapter is closed, but it was a very special time in my life for sure. Now. I have some small knowledge of wood-fired stoves, so I have to ask you this out of my own personal curiosity. What was the learning curve like for learning to work with wood-fired <laughs> stoves? Um, I was, now I'm older and wiser and I would never go it alone, but mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're younger, you just think you know everything. So I um, texted my former mentor, Dave Bauer at Farm and Spare, who also uh, worked had a, a had a wood fired oven and I said you just light a fire inside the chamber and he was like yeah <laughs> so um I the first fire I lit I got the oven up to about 600 degrees which for me seems really hot um, but I had about 80 loaves of bread to bake and I put the bread directly you know it's a directly fired chamber so you build a fire in the chamber it heats all the masonry you uh brush the fire, the ashes out, it should, shouldn't be fire, <laughs> but uh, you brush the ashes out, let it cool down, and then you do all of your baking. Um, so got it up to 600, brushed the ashes out, started putting my bread in, and then the temperature just immediately plummeted. And, um, you know, the last couple rounds of bread were like pancakes. And so I realized pretty quickly um, it was important to really saturate the uh, all of the masonry, like really soak it with the heat. So I started firing the oven overnight and I would wake up in the morning to have my bread in the cooler ready to go from a basket onto the hearth and then have the oven ready. But I'd say it took about a year and a half for me to really get a grasp on managing, always uh, being prepared with kindling and seasoned wood and the right kind of wood. And it's certainly not rocket science, but that's what I love about all these simple things like wood-fired ovens and sourdough. It's really um it can be just very simple but you can also uh, take it as far as you want to go so it, it was fun I still have a I now have a mobile wood-fired oven when I left the space I had a, a similar concept oven but just built on wheels so I still get to make fire every now and then what were some of the things you were baking what, what were some of your most popular wares that you sold definitely um a market bread, so just like a freshly milled flour, sourdough, and then I would take that one basic dough and do olives and rosemary, and then also grits in one dough, so I'd say those were the most popular breads, and then I really loved baking pie, 
I think um, I had worked making bread for a lot of other people in my life. So I had more um, expectations and sort of um, things I was like, quote unquote, trying to do with my bread. But making pie was, I think, brought me back to those days younger with my mom in the kitchen and just like having fun with the scraps and, you know, eating the fruit as you go. It's just like a, I don't want to say much more joyful, but I was much more relaxed with pie. So I brought a lot of pies to the farmer's market as well. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, During this time period, you were able to learn about fresh flour at the Carolina Ground Boutique Flour Mill in the Western North Carolina area where you're at. Can you tell us about this time a bit? Sure. Um, Part of finding my voice as a baker was definitely uh, working with Jennifer Lapidus and the crew at Carolina Ground. So, um, you know, for over a decade, I just took it for granted, like opening up a 50 pound bag of white flour and scooping it out, you know, putting my hands in and it, it, flour as an ingredient didn't strike me as like something that needed to be fresh or that was perishable or could be interesting. It was like you added flavor to bread based on the other things that you put with the flour. This is a huge uh, shift in my thinking about the kind of bread that I wanted to make and see in the world was realizing going all the way back to even soil ecology, like a winemaker might with grapes or a a coffee grower might with certain varietals and um, just experimenting more with uh, flavorful and fresh flour as the the primary driving ingredient and uh, I don't want to keep using the word flavor, but um, the thing that's most exciting about the bread dough. I was gifted a a grist mill uh, this year and um, I've been kind of learning to use it uh, through trial and error. For somebody who is beginning to learn to use uh, a grain mill and working with freshly ground flowers, do you have any advice or guidance? (laughs) Yeah. Home mills are really tricky. I think they're great uh, because that's going to be the freshest of the fresh that you can get. I will often uh, keep my like berries. So I love uh, turkey red is a wheat variety I love or danko rye is a rye variety that I love. If I buy the berries in bulk, I keep them in my freezer. One of the issues with a tabletop mill at home is that um, the stones are quite small. They're generally just a couple of inches wide. So as they're spinning against each other to make a fine flour for you, it's gonna heat up really quickly. Um, And so then you get hot flour, which isn't the end of the world, but it's not really what we want. So um, keeping the berries in the freezer before you pass them through the mill is gonna give you a better temperature flour. And then that'll sort of help you have a little bit better fermentation um, for your bread doughs in particular. Um, And then I often run stuff through twice to get a a finer grade. Um, The berry on those small stones is only on there for so long. So um, often I'll do like a, a coarse run and then a finer run. And quite frequently I sift. So I can feel like I'm panning for gold in my kitchen, but I have a little sifter. Um, I believe on bread topia you can get different mesh sizes. And I'll often sift out the larger particles or the bran and then soak those like in milk overnight and add them to stuff or um, hydrate them like pour boiling water and then put them back in the bread dough. So I'll kind of try and get some of the uh, heavier chunky stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, I totally yeah. get that. I'm kind of figuring that yeah. out now. So thank, I really, I really, really appreciate that. So thank you. Now you teach in-person and virtual workshops on sourdough bread and other delicious treats such as whole grain pie crust and sourdough cinnamon rolls. What's it like teaching right now? We, you know, because I know that every, a lot of people are kind of going to virtual stuff now that we've been having the pandemic and some people have actually found it to be a kind of preferred medium to reach more people. So what's that been like for you right now? Sure. I, I love doing both, but I do think uh, something like bread baking or making pie dough, you know, these are very physical, tactile um, things that we're doing. And when people are struggling at home, it's often not with anything huge. It's often just with the flick of a wrist or a little tuck that you do. And I find those things to be challenging to convey virtually. Um, I think information is a great, uh, you know, if I want to talk about the bread making process and kind of give people tips, like virtual classes are great for that. And um, I have enjoyed having a, uh, what I feel like is a more accessible price point for people with the virtual classes that that's been wonderful. And then of course, being able to have people from all over the world join in, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for um, virtual classes opening up in the, in the world of baking. But I think there's something very special about people standing side by side and learning it together. So my, my real passion is the in-person experiences and those range from either like a Saturday morning four-hour class where maybe you take the bread home and bake it in your own oven, or I go all the way to like I do summer camps every summer for adults. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, five days we rent out a whole camp. There's s'mores. It's like a thing. Um, and those I find uh, not only do people leave those experiences with more confidence in their baking, but, you know, sometimes it's really about the people that we meet on the way. So I like to see friendships, you know, blossom over those couple of days that we share together too. So. That sounds wonderful. In <laughs> that sounds really great. Like I'm like very interested in that right now. Like, wow, sign me up. Yeah, you, you get little, it's uh, um, I'm, I'm revealing too much now, but everybody gets a special little badge at the end of camp, so. That's pretty, that sounds pretty <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. I wanna talk about your book, A Baker's Year, 12 Months of Baking and Living the Simple Life at the Smoke Signals Bakery. This came out in 2018. This wasn't just, I, I don't want people to think this was just a cookbook, though. This was kind of a journal and kind of a chronicle of your life during this time period and, you know, baking along the way and creating. Talk to our, our audience who are not familiar with the book and tell them about it and what it was like writing this book for you. I, I've always wanted to be a, a writer, even when I was a kid. Uh, you know, if you look back at my school paperwork, like, what do you want to be? You know, a writer was right up there for me. And um, I got a cold call from a publisher and um, they had seen a recent article in Bon Appetit magazine and approached me with a book deal. And I took it and um, I'm not a great smoker, but I got a pack of cigarettes and a black turtleneck and a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> and I said, great, you got called on my friends, signed my book deal, you know, can't talk, got it right. I and I had, no, I had no idea what I was doing, no idea. <laughs> Um, and about six months in, I think I called my good friend who's a journalist, you know, with some tears in the middle of the night, like, how do I write a book? Like, please. He's like, well, we could start with an outline. Um, but I was very lucky in the sense that 
they had asked me to keep a bit of my journal and I, I did feel confident in some of the things that I had to say about life and love and um, relationships and, and uh, coming into adulthood. Um, so all that flowed very naturally. Um, and at the time I was also doing my production baking and um, doing that all by myself. And so one of the ways that that worked for me was like all my recipes were very simple. And I often had like one dough that I would do multiple things to. So, um, you know, the book does take you through a whole year of kind of uh, me doing some soul searching and uh, finding myself through baking. And uh, it's very straightforward. And uh, uh, what do I want to say? Um, the recipe for the bread is solid, but there's only one recipe for bread, whereas my next book is 80. So yeah. there's been a big, big shift over the you know past five or six years for me. But again, uh, that book uh, is my journal from that time of living at the bakery, uh, uh, first with a, a partner and then going through a breakup and um, finding myself just, you know, I was, I remember sitting at the bakery after uh, my boyfriend, I broke up at the time, which seemed, you know, like the world was ending now. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but um I said, what am I going to do? And she said, Carrie, you're a baker and you're living at a bakery. <laughs> you're going to bake. And I was like, right. So uh, it was a wonderful project to really throw myself into. I think sometimes when we're grieving, we all need those things to just pour ourselves into. It's really part of the healing process. But um, now I'm, a, I'm married now. I have a toddler and I'm ready to get into times and temperatures for your sourdough bread. <laughs> Now, I, I really love the book, and I thought, you know, it reminded me of other, for different people's writing. I just saw some, like, uh, early Peter Reinhardt's Brother Juniper book and uh, Patty Smith, her writing, and I, I thought there's some really deeply personal stuff in there. When you published it and you knew it was about to come out, were you like, oh, my God, everybody's going to find out about my life? Did you have any panic attacks from that or anything, or were you just, like, totally cool with putting it all out there? pretty cool with it I'm I'm a bit of an open book um in a way I think um I like sharing uh things that that are very personal um but I don't I I think that whatever I'm going through I'm a human being on this planet I don't think I am incredibly special I imagine if I'm struggling with something you know probably somebody sitting across from me is struggling with the same thing if not that they're struggling with something I know um, not to just make life be about struggle but I I like to highlight those things because especially in the age of social media it can really just seem like everybody's at like a beach vacation all the time <laughs> and um, you know we all have things that we're going through that we could use support with so um, I kind of like to divulge first <laughs> in the hopes that it's uh you know helpful to somebody that might be going through it or um has gone through something similar but what did you think when you first I mean this was your first book that came out how did you feel you know because it has a very unique look to it very kind of a neat kind of bespoke design and I like the way that the publisher put it out how did you feel about the art direction and the look of it when it came out I felt really lucky because I was able to do all of the photography. I did all of the illustrations. I even did like, um, I cut the letters 
for the cover, like out of construction wow. paper. <laughs> Damn. So like, you know, it was really, I've always kept journals. So in that sense, it felt successful in the kind of intimacy and just like hands, like crafted element of it. Um, but I also over time have really come to realize um, in a lot of areas of my life that things uh, with, with more people involved, with more eyes on a project, with more uh, thoughts and hands involved, things can really take on a life of their own. So I'm really uh, very excited about um, the look of this next book in the sense that feels completely authentically me, but also um, the photographs and some of the illustrations are you know, really lucky to work with some wonderful people and just elevate the whole thing. So very different um, styles, but you know, still, I'm still in there. They're both, they're all little, little country, a little psychedelic, you know. <laughs> now you, yeah. you mentioned something I wanted to talk about next and that's coming out of the week of this, this being released, Flower Power, the practice and pursuit of baking sourdough bread is gonna be coming out right now. Can you tell us a little bit about this cookbook and how you came to write it and what, what, you, what you were thinking about when you were conceptualizing it? I am so excited for this book, uh, genuinely, and I'm excited to be working with uh, Clarkson Potter. And the book guides you through making um, like a simple white flour uh, sourdough starter, a 100% whole wheat uh, sourdough starter, and a 100% rye sourdough starter. And then the end of the book is called Extra Credit, and it walks you through what to do with all of your um, excess or discarded sourdough starter that you might encounter on your journey. So the concept is that you're taking class with me in the book form. And um, there's over 80 recipes that involve sourdough. And then the front is really loaded with uh, some of the things that we would talk about in an in-person or virtual class, like um, wheat varietals, um, step-by-step, step, you know, what you're going to do from taking your starter out of the fridge and refreshing it all the way through pulling your bread out of the oven. There's lots of um, so choose your own adventure moments. So I encourage, uh, especially home bakers, I think, I think the refrigerator is underused. <laughs> so how to pull out great flavor from your bread simply by letting it rest in the fridge. Um, and it's bold and it's colorful. And we really just wanted the joy that I experienced in making bread to come through with this book. And I feel that it, it truly does. Now, I know that a lot of listeners here, including myself, really started working on sourdough during the quarantine. And I started developing a love-hate relationship with sourdough <laughs> because when it works out well, it's just this rock star moment where you feel like a kind of god of bread. And then the 90% of the time where it tends to fail a lot for me is when you feel like a complete dud and failure. And why am I even <laughs> doing this in the first place? <laughs> so how yeah. is your uh, trials and tribulations working with sourdough gone? Or did you have you just gotten to a point where you've reached a point where it's always kind of good and you're in the zone? Um, I... I <laughs> <laughs> Where do I want to start with that? Um, when I'm making something new for the first time, like uh, for 
for example, if I'm writing a recipe just totally from scratch, I have an, an idea for a bread in my head. Um, that takes me about three times to really get that recipe where I want it to be. And so I still have in my own practice, you know, areas where I'm, I'm failing and learning and failing and learning and kind of getting up and trying again, I think is always just part of the baking journey. Um, but I, I do think it's reasonable for a home baker to get into a practice and learn to the point where they're consistently making really nice bread. So I do think it is something that, that people should and can be proud of, right? We don't often get to do something with our hands from start to finish and then eat it with butter so it's great yeah. <laughs> uh really important i think but um i'm not sure where else i was going with that but um yeah i'm sorry it was kind of an off the cuff yeah. question no so. no 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 it's, it's a good one that's i think all i have for that <laughs> what is the yeah. importance of flour and sourdough baking because i know that like we talk about that in the context of other breads and stuff but it seems to me like I, I can I hear this this stuff for people like one person will say you can use any kind of flour for sourdough and another person's like you should only use bread flour or a certain type of bread flour and it's like kind of maddening so what is what are what how how does flour react with sourdough what, what does it do because I know do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah uh, I find it maddening too just so you know <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, regulations or um, you know, bakers have a common language, but then you'll talk to each baker and they're using the same word, but they don't mean the same thing. So it, it, it's a steep learning curve um, coming into the baking world and trying to piece all this together. But, um, you know, in your sourdough starter in general, you're going to have uh, wild beasts cultivated from, you know, your environment in the flour, your hands. Um, and they're going to have lactic acid bacteria, which is also uh, coming from the environment, a little bit from the flower, and likewise. So the microbes, the yeast and bacteria, um, you know, the way I think about giving them uh, freshly milled flour, say a nice bread flour from a place like Carolina Ground or Anson Mills, um, you're giving the yeast and uh, lactic acid bacteria like a gorgeous buffet, right? It's like a feast for them because in this beautiful, well-made flour, they're getting some fat from the germ. They're getting all the starches and protein in the endosperm. They're getting some of that bran. And, um, you know, a little bit of the bran is going to have this layer on the backside that's loaded with enzymes. So you're giving them um, a lot to consume and work with and transform. Whereas, um, like, a, if you pick up just a bag of all-purpose or white bread flour from the supermarket, um, there's just less there. It's uh, mostly a, a really finely milled um, kind of proteiny, starchy, rich powder, which is which is fine. And so, um, you know, I've lived in a lot of different places, and in particular. Um, some of the more rural uh, and beautiful places that I've lived, I don't have access to a lot of this uh, great freshly milled flour unless I'm ordering it online, which can be really cost prohibitive. From a personal standpoint, I do like to let folks know you can make great sour bread with white roller milled flour from the grocery store, um, truly. But, um, you know, it is, there's only three or four ingredients in the whole bread dough uh, most of the time. And you know, flour and water are the biggest ones. 
So um, setting up your uh, microbial colony, if you will, with um, all of this deliciousness just kickstarts fermentation. You're gonna have really nice fermentation. You have beautiful color to the crust and the crumb of your bread. And it's gonna be really active. Like I, I like to say that I want flour that has vitality to it. And that is what I feel when I have uh, freshly milled stone ground flour. I, I truly think of it as a living ingredient. So, you know, I keep it in the freezer. Um, I don't necessarily have tubs and tubs of it around. I buy it as I need it and I bake with it and then, you know, get more um, kind of how I treat coffee. But um, I think those are the, <laughs> I don't, I don't believe that there's such a hard binary between, um, you know, freshly milled stone ground flour and say a roller milled white supermarket flour. I like to blend them a lot is really what I do. And so I encourage people to do that at at home and in the book and that's what I do I'll, I'll do like it's very rare for me to make a bread with just one flour I like to kind of get two or three going on in there um, because we get the terroir with the freshly milled stone ground flour but then we get some predictability and stability with something like a, a great bag of King Earth organic bread flour from the supermarket so this is a, a long-winded way to say it's Great uh, superior starter with a uh, uh, freshly milled um, stone ground flour. It's not absolutely necessary. What do you think some of the most uh, basic mistakes that uh, we uh, people who tilt at the windmill of sourdough make? <laughs> I think everybody's really nervous. <laughs> I think everybody's <laughs> at home staring down their bread dough, yeah. you know, poking it and um, just wondering what the heck is going on in there. And rightly so. Um, but I encourage people to, um, I always tell folks in my classes uh, to overproof a loaf of bread on purpose, because I think one of the things you need to do in your home kitchen is like really familiarize yourself with the um, particulars of the environment you're making the bread in. And, um, you know, my recipe or somebody else's recipe can, can say, leave it on your countertop to proof. So, uh, you know, the second rise of your bread dough for two to three hours, that's, we're guessing to be quite honest, right? That that's going to work for you in your kitchen under this temperature and with this kind of humidity. But we all know that our kitchens vary to vary, even within our houses, our rooms vary. So um, I think often home bakers will, put things in the fridge too soon, or we will bake a loaf too soon um, because we're worried about things getting out of control. It's really rare for stuff to get that um, out of control in your home environment. I see that more in commercial settings because huge tubs of dough have higher temperatures, they ferment quicker. It's really different than just making um, one to four loaves of bread at a time. So. I think that um, I think in general, home bakers could ease back on the stress and just really let things go and, um, you know, wait to bake that loaf till it feels like lofty, like a pillow. It should feel like a pillow before you put it in the fridge or put it in the oven. And if you, if you make bread, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't, it's going to sound really weird, but um no, that's how, I totally yeah. get what you're saying. And that's a yeah. mistake I've made so many times is not doing that. Yeah. Well, and I, I admittedly, as a 
someone who writes recipes, you know, I'm telling you to put it in the fridge at four hours. So, you know, it's a, it's a conversation we're having. Now, I know that the one thing I always do that I, I want to just give this advice to other people, do it, do it in the bread's time. Don't do it in your time. Cause I, the, the biggest rookie mistake I always made was I treated it like baking a cake or muffins or something. Like I'm going to do this. I have this amount of time and I'm going to do the bread and like the, the bread doesn't always want to cooperate. And then I end up, like you said, with putting it in before it's fully risen. And I end up with this like uh, doorstop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> but yeah. That's great advice. The bread's time. It's my next tattoo. <laughs> Do you have you um, enjoyed using any other types of flours other than wheat? Have you tried using other things? I know you talked about rye there, but have you tried using other things like maybe buckwheat or something like that? Have you like worked with those? Yeah, for sure. I'm actually, it's funny, I was living um, on the border of Kentucky for a little while and just like deep in the heart of Appalachia. And I'm only now, um, I just recently moved to the DC metro area. I am using cornmeal so much and everything. I can't get enough of it. And maybe it's nice. just because I'm a little homesick. <laughs> nice. But uh, yeah, cornmeal is going in everything uh, from like a cornmeal cake, like just a really easy, like, um, sheet pan style cake with like some blueberries and, and yogurt to I've been making cornbread every morning for the past four days so I'm um, really exploring and, and doing um getting like polenta and then milling it at home to make the the fine meal couple and a couple different varieties um so that's really exciting to me and I do love um einkorn and emmer uh, some of the older grains um just they're really delicate um flavorful, really aromatic flowers. I know those are still wheat, but I tend to uh, put a little bit of those in everything that I'm making. I love that. Now, can you tell us who are some of the food writers that you like to read that you loved reading over the years? I uh, always share quotes from MFK Fisher's How to Cook a Wolf in my classes. I think that is a beautiful book that everyone should read. <laughs> And um, I'm really excited about my friend, Melissa Martin's writing right now. She um, has a supper club called Mosquito Supper Club in New Orleans. And also um, just one of James Beard for her cookbook called Mosquito Supper Club. And I think she captures a lot about um, the state of our environment right now and how that relates to our food. And also just, yeah, the state of our, our emotions collectively in the country right now. So I'm uh, always excited to talk about her book. Now, I want to ask you, I like to ask people who come on what they're making today. Are you baking anything special today? I have pizza dough going. Nice. Uh, my, yeah, my daughter is about to start school this week. And so we're having a little uh, pizza party before we have to explain to her what a uniform is. <laughs> Are you teaching her how to bake? Or is she learning to cook from you? She is. Yeah. Oh, she's. A, uh, she would just eat raw dough all day long. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to explain. Like, it's not. You know, it's not baked yet. But she'll see uh, if I'm making a cookies or anything like that. She'll see me take out the kitchen and mix, and she goes, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that. So yeah, it's great. What are, um, you talked at the beginning of the uh, episode about, you know, your mom's baking and what are some of your favorite food memories of the time when you were young and 
your mom was baking and, and, and what, are, what are some of the things you love that she made? Gosh, my mom is an amazing cake baker and it was always uh, something special to sit down and talk with her about what you wanted for your birthday cake. And I just had um, the best birthday cakes growing up, um, you know, the frosting colors that you wanted. And she was, uh, and is, I imagine still, um, she's, she's still here with us, but um, really creative artistically. And we'd always get like the best cake toppers, you know, and, and now looking back as a mom myself, you know, I realized how she was probably staying up late, you know, to make all of that happen. And um, just what it means to run to the store when you're also taking care of kids. So I, uh, I appreciate how she baked for us uh, so much now as a mom myself, but also um, her chocolate chip cookies were unparalleled and um, her brownies were always glossy on the top. <laughs> Very nice. So we, we bake a lot now and in different ways together because she's like, okay, famous baker lady, like show me how to, you know, show me how to make your pie crust and um my mom's in her 70s and 40. And so it's, it's fun now to kind of the tables have turned in a way. And um, I get to be, um, you know, baking things with my mom only I'm showing her. But uh, I remember one time we were making a pie crust together. And she said, don't use your teacher voice with me. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm that. your mom. And <laughs> so I, I, I always say she is the original baker hands, really. I love that. So yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you for being on the program. And I want to mention again that this week of the airing of this episode, Flower Power, The Practice and Pursuit of Baking Sourdough Bread is coming out. Uh, you can get it online. Uh, we have links that you can go to in the bio to buy the book. And it's available at all better bookstores as well. And also, we also are going to have links up so you can get a baker's year, 12 months of baking and living the simple life as well. Um, you can go and get that book as well. I'm sure you'll want to after hearing this interview. Tara, thank you for being on the program. I really, really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you and hope we can have you on here again. Dean, thank you. That was my conversation with author Tara Jensen. We discussed her book, Flower Power, The Practice and Pursuit of Baking Sourdough Bread. We have links to this in the bio. And if you don't own it, I recommend you get it, especially if you're serious about bread baking. On Wednesday, we're going to be talking with Tara Teaspoon about her book, Delicious Gatherings, and about her career as a magazine editor, blogger, and food writer. Uh, check that out. That's going to be another Encore presentation on Wednesday in a week of Encore presentations. Until then, I'll see you in the library. <laughs>